0: Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and Founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer.
1: Welcome back to Genuine Humans and I'm here as always with my fabulous co-host Wendy. Wendy how are you doing? Hi Tamara I'm good thank you. Normally at this point I'd be worrying that my dog was
0: about to bark and apologizing in case it interrupted us but he's gone on holiday. Our lovely stepdaughter asked if she could have him for a few days and we're like please take him. Yeah, So yeah
1: good and, and relaxed. How are you? Yes, I'm, I'm fine. I'm still, I, I don't think I'm husky anymore, but I feel like I've had a cough for about a month and I'm getting very, very bored with it, but apparently it's still not COVID. So there is that. But I am joined, well, we are both joined today by the fabulous Elliot Moss, who is the partner and chief brand officer at Mishkondorea. Welcome, Elliot.
2: Hello, the two of you. How are you both?
1: Very, good. very good. Yeah, good. How are you?
2: I'm very good. I'm good. It's good, it's good to see you. Um, and, and, and yes, and lovely and, and colourful cupboards and things over there. With and, <laughs> and they and can't very, see them. No, they can't, but we can imagine them. And look yes. at the lovely windows behind tomorrow. That's all looking good. Hello. Thank you for having me on.
1: I do appreciate because I know that lots of people do podcasts and it is just audio only. I like the fact that we can see you, Elliot, because we can see... It stops me from over talking over guests as well which can be uh, a good thing
2: (laughs) oh it's lovely to see you too it's good yeah you're right and and it's um I think it's important it's like doing an interview is as much about what someone looks like they're thinking as much as what they say they're thinking right body language is important definitely and there you are I can tell what you're both thinking (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, that's ridiculous (laughs) I can't it's okay
1: so Elliot I think I would like to start with a bit of a a trip down memory lane of your career, if that's okay, because obviously you are the chief brand officer at Mishkondorea, very brilliant law firm. Up until now, we've actually sort of mainly been interviewing people who are working agencies or sort of brand side. This is the first time we've met uh, someone who's actually doing all the marketing for a law firm. But I also happen to know that you've got quite an interesting sort of path through your career. Would you mind just sort of sharing your story of kind of how you got to where you are now?
2: Sure. Um, so in the next four hours, you'll hear me talking about me. <laughs> no, so I'll do I'll do a quick one. Um, it actually my it starts with um, a work ethic, actually thinking about it. And I was sent out to work. By my evil parents in 1982 and i ended up caddying on a golf course and the reason i did that is because they said you can't have more pocket money than we're giving you and you want to buy those ls headband and uh, sweatband things which were very cool in the 80s and that's how it started my kind of understanding of the correlation between hard work and money mm-hmm. not that i'm a materialistic person at all anymore not that i was then and particularly but i realized it, it wasn't just going to come so i started working at the age of 12 13 doing golf rounds Um, I ended up uh, running a mobile disco, which sounds ridiculous now because they don't quite exist in the same way. But I was an assistant DJ and then ran, um, ended up running nightclubs and doing lots of parties through my teens. And that was my first business, my first sort of entrepreneurial thing with a my very, very close friend um, who sold the business to me.
1: Did it have a name? The uh, had, of
2: course it did. And it, ha- it didn't just have a name tomorrow. It had a strap line because I started young. And the, <laughs> the name of the business was, and if you were around Northwest London in the 80s, you will you will know that Elliot Moss and Daryl Franklin were the music factory. And we nice. played the music just for you. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's still as good now as it was then. So, yeah, we, we uh, did, a, did a disco, went to university, and um, was running a nightclub there. Ended up getting involved in politics, was interested in journalism and all sorts. Ended up writing for the lead student, which is where Kamal Ahmed and Damien Whitworth are the famous now, famous journalists, um, were, were writing. And did a politics degree and ended up getting a job as a graduate trainee in advertising. And I was very lucky. Um, I applied for about 25 ad agencies, got two interviews, Jay Walter Thompson and Leo Burnett. Ended up as a graduate trainee at Leo Burnett. Started September the 27th, 1993. I remember it well. I genuinely remember it well. I was 22, almost 23. Spent four years in the London office, two years in India, two years in Latin America, came back to London, uh, spent a few more years in London, ended up being the client service director, moved to become managing director of Liga Stelani, the iconic um, independent advertising agency. Uh, helped build the business there from 4 million to 7 million. I'm going fast here. Uh, Mishkondore became my client and I then became what was then director of business development. But it was really Kevin Gold said, come and help me. Um, in this business, please. And I don't really care what you're called. You do stuff. I want to create a famous brand. I have a famous name, Mishkondore, for those who don't know, represented Princess Diana, which is what people do seem to know in her divorce. But actually is now a thousand people business across four or five continents. And we have all sorts of non-legal businesses as well. Brand management, cyber security, all sorts of clever things like that. And here I am 12 years later as a partner in the business which is unusual not many law firms have partners who are not lawyers mm-hmm. uh, michigan's a pretty progressive place we've got about eight or nine non-lawyer partners now across strategy people uh, chief operating officer finance officer chief cfo and all that and then and then me and so my my job is to help promote the brand of michigan Durea and the And the brand is to, I know this is a long answer to your short question, the brand to me is about all the things you see, the awareness piece, which most marketers would be very familiar with. So Mm. what, you know, you read about Michigan in the news, you see adverts from Michigan, everything that is driving awareness is facet one of brand. facet two, though, because we're a service business with 600 lawyers, is all around the connections how do I encourage my lawyers to reach out into the world? And there are mini worlds, and there are many mini worlds of Michiganderer lawyers because of with 600 people in 40 different businesses. You might touch the the media world, you might touch the finance world, you might touch the banking, uh, the the oil and gas world it can be all sorts. So connections is part two. How do we reach out? And the third part is actually how we deliver our service. So what's the brand promise in terms of actual service delivery? How do we present at our best every time? How do we ensure that we're curious that we follow up, that we understand the importance of money, that we recognize the moments that matter, that we care for our clients in a fundamental way, that we deliver on all the things that we say we're going to do, that we win more than we lose for our clients and so on. So those, the triumvirate of the pillars of brand in Mishkondore are the things that I I help deliver on. But it's um, it's amazing. It's amazing because it's sort of a, from Leo Burnett, where my first brands were Kellogg's and Kraft, and the next ones were Mercedes, and then Procter & Gamble. This is a a living, breathing organism and I'll stop now because I'm sure you want to ask me another question.
1: There's several. So I'm going to start with just focusing on on when you joined Mishcon, obviously you were given carte blanche to, to create the brand, but how, how easy was it to sort of push on that door and and get all of the sort of the partners and the, the lawyers to really buy into the concept of being a brand?
2: So the journey began two years before because Mishkondorea became my client. So essentially, I was commissioned to help them understand what their brand was, what the positioning was, what it stood for in the market, how it was differentiated. So, so the sell, you know, when you're selling an idea, and, and, and tomorrow you do that for a living, when you're selling ideas and plans and thoughts, you have to create trust and you have to create credibility And you have to get people to believe that you understand their problem and that you care about it. And then as long as you're logical and you advocate really well, you can pretty much sell anything to anybody as long as they believe that you're doing it in their best interest. Mm -hmm. And that journey for me began two years before I started with Mishikondro because I was asked to do a a presentation about brand at their partners conference. At that point, there were 40 or 50 partners. there are now 180 or something. Um, And we did it in one of those swanky hotels in Oxford. And I began the I entitled the presentation, The Value of Values. And so it began with an, an an interrogation of their own values, which were like most co- corporates vanilla. And by the way, they still are vanilla unless you're inside it and you've, as I may have said to people before, you drunk the Kool Aid, and I've drunk so much I'm bubbling over with it. <laughs> so that the values mean something to me. you. Know when when I do all the inductions for new people, I I say one thing you'll remember it's our values, and they're not just wallpaper. But it started there with me explaining to them why their values weren't enough, but they were they were decent. But you had to actually bring your brand to life. They had an end line then. Uh, Mish Gondaren, not just any law firm. And I said, That's great, but what is it that you are? You're not just any law firm. So now you can tell me what you are. Mm-hmm. And so when I did that presentation, they were like, quite oh, like him. He's pretty honest. Because lawyers actually counterintuitive. You'd like to be told they're wrong,
1: as long as you can <laughs> give
2: them really good reasons. You know, mm-hmm. tomorrow you may know some lawyers quite well. And both, <laughs> <I do. laughs> uh, you know very well um, people we know in common. And, um, you know, they incredibly articulate, really smart. They do their homework. But actually, the insight is, an expert, and you you know, you and Wendy are experts in the world of communications and ideas. Experts love nothing more than experts in their own field. And when a lawyer finds an expert in their field, they actually become like putty in your hand because they believe you, as long as you advocate as well as them, whatever it is. And so they were very open from then. And then the work began in terms of actually getting into a brand positioning exercise and establishing brand essence and looking at competition, talking to people internally, reviewing quantitative data in terms of what clients said about look talking to the managing partner and the board about what drove their economic engine and bringing all those pieces together and now to say, okay, based on all this, based on the zeitgeist that's going on in the world at the moment about importance of openness and progressiveness and so on, let's try and find your essence. And so yeah. doing all that homework, the working in the margins, which you always tell your kids to do in maths exams because that's actually, you can get marks if you can get it wrong, it's exactly the same with presenting evidence to lawyers. Here's where I'm starting. Here's where I'm going. And actually, when you do very logical left-brained advocacy, you can get to a very right-brained solution if we're going to use the old left and right thing. And so the answer was pretty creative. You know, 50 million pound business then. You say people think you're a private client law firm, but actually 95% of what you do is business. I know what. Let's make you the law firm of the world of business because actually that's really compelling, and then we can bring in the fame that you have from your private world. And what what is what's important when you're a client of a law firm that the, that the lawyer cares and that they deliver a fabulous answer. That they're creative. That they, in our case, are very you know we have values which they were enlightened. That we are open and progressive, but actually we're also very intelligent. So intelligence plus tenacity, enlightened tenacity, as we called it. You're, you're knocking on an open door if you tell lawyers that that's what they deliver at their best then you find a market articulation for that which is rooted in we treat humans really well talking about genuine humans individuals is what makes up companies so the biggest companies in the world and we work for microsoft and hewlett-packard and all these m- enormous companies it's just a person mm-hmm. and that human that that person says treat me like a human be invested in me And I will believe that what you will deliver is great business advice. So our line is it's business, but it's personal. You will never get a faceless corporate thing giving you advice. You'll get a human being who's got skin in the game, who's going to bleed when you bleed, who's going to be really on your side and will always be standing up and going, no, 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 that's not right. This is what you should do. And so actually it became a, it wasn't about they didn't have a brand. They did. I just gave a voice to it. It was like the things were there, like any good hopefully brand strategist or creative person will go, I go into the kitchen of a, of a business, which I'm sure you love as well, and I fiddle around and I open all the drawers, uh, the red ones and the blue ones, Wendy, and the green ones too. I open <laughs> them all up and I go, what's in there? What's in there? Right, now I'm going to make you something cool. But it's it's you. It's your best version. Yeah. It's your best version in words and in pictures and in thought. And that's kind of what we did. So it was incredibly open, but I worked for two years to make it open, if that makes sense. Every conversation matters to me and always has done when I manage clients. And any and any any person, it really matters if you're right there in it and you care about that conversation. You are going to have a good conversation.
1: And I think when it's a people business, I mean the the brand is critical, and being able to you know really buy into in, in, into the brand. But you mentioned the the values, and and I think that's where a people business it's so important. Those values are right, but you can see it when it goes wrong. For big companies as well. And I, I've been in, um, I, I won't sort of name names, but uh, I've been in a, a foyer of like a, a very large company where <clears throat> they have the, the the value sort of on the wall. But then you hear people, the actual staff there, talking about how it doesn't really resonate. It's a bit meaningless. Yeah, and it's like, that's what they say that we are, but we're not. And and I think part of that whole branding, I suppose, is, is really getting everyone behind those those values and and the people
2: you're in a a service business you are nothing without the service of you know the delivery of the service by those human beings Uh, it's not like you know even starbucks which is a a sort of conflation of product and service is not the same as you know i used to sell washing powder daz washing powder was one of my first procter and gamble brands you're selling a product you're conferring ideas on the product but it's a product a lawyer is selling a human service And therefore, they have to believe that what they're doing has purpose. They have to believe they understand why they're doing it. And they have to believe that the people with them believe in the same thing. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. The values are meaningless. And unfortunately, when things get big, it's really hard without really brilliantly strong culture which overlays values, which bring values to life, which gives it uh, authenticity, but also gives it legitimacy. That's what I was looking for, legitimacy, because actually you go, is it all right to behave like this? Well, yes, it is, because Tamara and Wendy are the embodiment of our business. So therefore, that's what they say. And actually, when they make decisions in the boardroom about people, they refer to their values, as does Mishikon Durea. Mm -hmm. When they make decisions about agile working, they refer to their values. When they make decisions about how they pay people. When they make decisions about going public or not, it's actually based on what is right for our people. How is that going to make them feel? How can we create this incredibly cool vibe, which is real, where you then attract really bright, sparky humans, really bright, sparky individuals, and they come together. And I always say this in our inductions at Mishcon, you are now additive to our culture. You are now going to interpret these values in your own way. Mm. And that's really important. That's why you're here. So you've made it through, but this is now the beginning of bringing these things to life. Yeah. And I think that's that's the hardest thing about getting bigger, but the only way you do it is by really hiring brilliant people who can then keep a bit like um you know culture is literally a petri dish full of stuff right that's what culture is culture is yogurt it expands you need culture to self replicate yeah unfortunately it's a virus you know to, to use uh, unfortunately in this moment uh, not positive um analogy or metaphor. But actually, that's what it is. And if it spreads really positively, it's incredible. I can't control conversations on teams that are happening between person nine hundred and ninety nine and thousand. What I can do is create a culture where they're gonna have a really good conversation about whatever it is. Yeah, And then you do good things. We have an equity and diversity and inclusion strategy because lawyers care about these stuff. We have a really strong access to law strategy. We have a you know, really brilliant training. We have 1500 courses that we run every year. We get in brilliant speakers. We do crazy things like radio programs. We invest with the Financial Times. When you're in that company, you go, this is pretty good, wonder what I could do? And then you encourage people to go, hold on a minute, I've got an idea for a business. I wanna grow this one, I wanna lead that one. And that's culture. Yeah. And that's special, because then really clever people, much cleverer than you come. And I know everyone always says, oh, they're much cleverer than me, but they really are. They're really super bright and you just gotta give them the space. Yes, they were open and things evolve as you go. And then it gets more and more exciting. As long as you're clear, as Alistair Campbell, you say that there's a strategic framework of what your brand is about. You kind of know then everything else follows. And of course, that adjusts. But frankly, that's what keeps you going in the right direction. And then you can judge whether it's contrary to values, contrary to culture. Should we open in X? Well, that's a challenge. Can we get around that? Can we, you know, we just open in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's a really important part of the world it's great but of course there's issues in terms of the way people feel around China's role within Hong Kong we had to as a law firm discuss that in detail work out what that meant for us as a business and we've gone and we've gone ahead so so these are there are decisions that you make all the time about different things but as long as you're clear why you're doing it i think you can pretty much do anything you want to do as a business
1: yeah and going digging into a little bit more because i said i had several questions there was something that you just casually threw away earlier in your career that you were you went to Mumbai to set up the team there or
2: you're running a massive team I went yeah so so I always love the intersection of different cultures so I'm my my background is I'm northwest London Jewish guy right so definitely um according to official uh, people privileged on some level but then i go yes but i'm quite dark so if you can see me i'm like oh but maybe i'm not white but you go don't be ridiculous so the, but but the reason i mention all this is because as a jewish person in this country dis- despite all the, the the brilliant theories that abound on the internet there are only two hundred thousand people jewish people in the country there's about 70 million people and so for me you're always in the minority even in a place where the school is like in a demographic where you're gonna have more Jewish people, you're in a minority. I am constantly interested in different cultures. My ex-wife now, but very dear friend is half Indian. Mm-hmm. Her father was from born in Burma, but South Indian Christian, which is unusual in t- it's 20 million Christians in India. Her mother was white. It's not by accident that I gravitated towards different culture. And right the way through my life, I've always, you know, I, I did Spanish and politics at university. I love languages. There's something about politics, which is about inclusion and about exclusion and about ideas. All the things that I've been interested in, I've been lucky enough to kind of embrace. And, and going to Mumbai was amazing. And in fact, I was meant to see my old boss um, and one of my best bosses in, in my career. Um, who was the CEO of Leah Burnett. I couldn't see him last week because of illness, because of COVID, post-COVID rubbish. But, you know, I'm in contact with him 20-something years later. It was a special time with incredible people. And the I always said this, the consequences of failure in India are so big mm-hmm. that the people that make it through have gone through things that none of us can really understand in, 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 that, in that country. And the middle class has, of course, grown and so on. But the consequences of failure in this country are very different. We're much smaller. It's a much more developed country. If you fall through the net in India, you really fall through the net. And so what I found in India was it was the next two years, lived in, lived in as you said, in Mumbai, which is a fabulous city. We had offices in Delhi and Calcutta and Bangalore as well. I was the only non, uh, non-Indian, although they all thought I was Indian and because uh, of the way I look. Um, the firangi, as they say in Hindi, and I learned a bit of Hindi as well. I had an absolutely brilliant time professionally and personally and every day was an adventure genuinely it was like you don't know what's going to happen and that's not the same in the west so mumbai was a very special time i I led the procter and gamble business and i think the kellogg's business and the Heinz business and pitch for some other stuff and it was really really successful we had a man doing the washing area was my brand and we in 1997 got a sold a campaign to procter and gamble to get a bloke to do the washing which may sound like nothing special, but in India, uh, you know, the the feminist revolution is has been happening for thousands of years, hundreds of years, and of course, it's an ongoing thing. But to get a man doing the washing then was, you know, it, it, it catapulted the business. We had this guy turning up, and it was basically like, "Why why are you doing the washing? Because my wife's at work," and it was a flip on the whole thing, and that was a so I was very I was very very proud of that. And that job also took me to other parts of Asia, to Japan, to Hong Kong. I had a a regional role, and I was 26. So this is, you know, and I had a team of about 50 or 60 people. So a crazy time in terms of learning about management and volume of work and complexity. And you know, you go from that being a kid where you ask to do a task and you do it, to the very non-binary world of management, Mm. and the ambiguity and the holding things lightly, and the, I can't just get through my 50 things on my list, because that's not, that's not my list anymore i'm now i'm managing souls people yeah but it was it was extraordinary um, an extraordinary time so yes, mumbai and then mexico city which was different and there i was travelling even more because i had a regional role and then i really did end up all over the world um, again with png and the mexican experience was very very different um, it's a it was a tougher place in many ways it's a, it's a more aggressive place i think the culture of mexico is an angry one in parts it's beautiful and amazing, and cultured, and dramatic, physically as is India, um, but it wasn't as I, I think. There's a there's so much stuff that's happened there in different ways with external forces that it's it's not as soulful. Um, I'm saying to my Mexican friends, they will kill me." But it's not. It's just a different place. It just has a has a darkness to it, which I think India, of course, has in its its existence, but not in its the way that people live their lives. You'd be in a cab in Mumbai. And people would just start chatting Mm -hmm. to each other randomly. And you'd be with the poorest person in your office who who was earning a pound a day or something. They'd offer their food to you every time, every time. I mean, it's moving. You go, my God, what have I been? I've been this gluttonous beast from the West where I eat my Kit Kat and I don't share it or whatever it is. It's just so much more collective in, in the East. And Mexico was wonderful as well. And there were, of course, parts of that, but it had been... I think the the fight with the American proximity was tough. And I think the Spanish Spanish impact as well and all that. There were so many tensions there, which were slightly different to India, where, of course, there had been other empire stuff but it just had a different vibe. I'll stop getting into a pseudo-history kind of exposition of uh, two different continents. But, but yeah, were, it was an incredi- incredible time. And I ended up playing rugby for India in the World Cup qualifiers. Of course you did. Of course I did. When you knew that was the next <laughs> line, you knew that was going to come. But that, that you know, you can I, – I, I had dinner one night with M.F. Hussein, who's one of India's most famous artists. You end up in bonkers situations and you meet a load of people. And that is – back to when I was a kid you just I love meeting different people and you embrace it all and then you end up just getting you know I'm like a little magpie you get stuff from everywhere and that informs the next idea or the next decision or whatever it might be
0: Mm -hmm. thinking back to I'm going back to before you were when the caddy and I'm assuming not the one from the line of duty and before you started the music factory so what were you like as a kid I mean it sounded like you loved meeting people
2: I was pretty chatty Wendy I think um (laughs) I was pretty chatty. I think my mum and dad used to say I never stopped talking in the back of the car. Um, I have a lot of energy and obviously I'm fifty one now, so you know, I'm now the calmer version of the <laughs> lunatic that was I think I was um ebullient, didn't have much self control. <laughs> fizzing with ideas, probably some people, as is probably still the case, absolutely love me. Some people just don't want to be you know, anywhere near me, probably less so, because you get better at hiding who you are right here. <laughs> so oh, no, I'm really normal, oh, you can talk to me. No, but um, I think also I broke lots of high chairs. So I think I had a bit of a temper, which right. is actually something which doesn't go away. And it's something I'm still working on today. Um, but there's a kind of um, a frustration It's not a selfish frustration like, I want, I want. It's a frustration of life should be like that, which I think drives you. It drives you to sell the idea. It drives you to make things better. I joined Amnesty International when I was 15 because I saw a film called Cry Freedom and I was angry. So I think I was very, I had fights with my family who were quite right-wing about Mm. Israel and about politics. I'm like, well, no, 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 that's not right. I'm far further left of center than that. So I think, Wendy, to answer your question, um, lots of energy, almost like unstoppable energy, like like never, just never like a like a, dervil. a a whirling dervish. That's the one. I can never say that word. I feel like I'm. It's my second language, in English, but it's not. Um, whatever the phrase is, one of those. And um, someone who was interested in everything. So the mm. thing that's on one level is a big tick is I'm a jack of all trades, and the big cross is I'm a jack of all trades. You know, I can literally get into anything. And that's what makes you great in advertising because you can one day be looking at a car and get excited and go, this is how we talk about it. Another day, it's a charity. And I was really proud of some of what we did with Oxfam. And another day, a pharmaceutical company. Another day, a law firm. And you end up having this amazing ability to be interested. Yeah. And I'm genuinely interested in everything. And that's, you know, I will read every The FT on the weekend, I read everything. I'll read the Times every day. I'll read anything I can get hold of, you know, very wide. And I meet all these people through the radio program. Met tomorrow and when, whenever we met. And that's, that fills your head with like other people's worlds and that's the stuff that then pollutes you in a good way and enables you to be creative and a bit different. You're not trying to be different. You just can't help but see the world through 50 different lenses.
0: It sounds like you've always been quite a high achiever and that must be, is it pretty great?
2: Yeah. Um, it's, so yeah, I, w- I went to a school which was a pretty academic school with lots of other, lots of smart people and Sasha Baron Cohen was in my year and a few other well-known people across the different years of the school. Um, so I had a reputation for, I suppose, sp- spewing out some sort of interesting characters. I I, I did. I mean, I mucked up an A-level or two because I was DJing the night before, which wasn't very clever, which is a good life lesson. You know, I knew that at that point I wasn't an A student unless I worked really hard, right. which is a really good thing to learn. I mean, arguably, it would have been good to have realized that. At the beginning of my A levels, but there you go. <laughs> yes. Um, but yes, so yeah, the high achieving thing, sure, because you, you, it, you I have, I suppose, I have been. If you look, looked at it on one level, you know, on a paper level, but it's not always great, no, because then you, you know, every day is a new day, and the the insecurity you hear in extremists from sport, you know, elite sports people or elite whoever it might be, is it's exhausting because you're living it every day. You're mm-hmm. not. You never get there, because I wake up every day going, well. I better be good today because the last 51 years are irrelevant, which is sort of good in a a Eckhart Tolle, you know, live in the present way. And it's exhausting because then you're you're delegitimizing any good thing you've done, but also you remember all the bad stuff because obviously you were because that's the kind of brain you have because if I do all those bad things again, like lose my temper or I don't work hard enough, then I won't succeed. So there is an internal battle and to get to the calmness takes a lot, which is why I do lots of sport, probably should do more, meditation or the mindfulness stuff but it's really hard but then mm. I do the sport so I can be ah, a bit calmer so that people listening going god is exhausting to listen to but it's it's sort of I can find the space like we all can right like you know I'm looking at you two and you're running an incredibly successful award winning business so you know talking to high achievers here you've got to find the space and it but you can do it the weird thing is you can change your life in an hour if you want to you can fix a business's problem in an hour if you want to but it's just locking everything else out And that's when being a high achiever is okay because you can make remarkable strides very quickly with a couple of clever people in a room as long as you're clear on what the problem is. And actually that's where the brain power goes, funnily enough. Mm. And I've jumped away from answering the, is being a high achiever a good thing or not? (laughs) It's a bit of both. But actually the the upside is, you know, you're slightly mental and you can slightly read things very, I can read stuff really quickly and go, there are three things that we need to look at. And that's a skill. And that's definitely a useful skill. Absolutely, it's unuseful when you when you are when you are very angry and when you're very hard on yourself, which I am. That's yeah. why it's not so hot.
0: And the locked in a room thing it, it, to figure something out with a couple of people, it just feels like such a luxury nowadays. It feels there's so many, you, you know, on our screens. There's six different conversations going on at once, and
2: yeah, no, you've got to stop. You've got to you've got to slow it down. And if however many of you run the business, you know that if you actually said there are three things we need to fix, and we are going to turn the phones off and we're not, we're all going to be in a room you'll probably fix them. You'll have yeah. a pretty good idea on how to. And that's the joy of finding like-minded people and running a business that's your own, where you can go, well, that's what we're going to do because I believe in that. You know, And I've read lots about your business in terms of how you treat people and what you want. That's like that's the way to live. You're just living your life, but it happens to be called a business. Well, that's pretty cool. And I feel the same way, by the way, which is why I'm saying it because I, I don't have any distinction between work and not work. Right, because I'm a workaholic. No, but apart from <laughs> that, but because because I want to bring my full self. I want everyone in my team, everyone in this business, to just be themselves. Yeah. And if we want to create a place which uh, treats people nicely, which embraces diversity, regardless of colour, regardless of sexuality, regardless of age, well, that's I'm up for that. Right. I mean, that sounds like a pretty good place to go. That you like good ideas. Yeah. That will back you if we think you've got a good idea. You'll yeah, put some money in, on the table. If that's the kind of place you want to work, then go work in that place. And if you're not in a place like that, don't work it. And you want to be, leave.
0: Sounds fairly straightforward when you put it that way, Elliot. You've obviously met some amazing people in all the different places you've been, the companies you work, the countries you've lived in. Mm-hmm. Are there any that you can single out who've been particularly helpful or influential? You know, which genuine humans have have really influenced you over the years?
2: I've had a few brilliant bosses. For different reasons. Uh, There was early in my career, and in fact, both American and both women, coincidentally, on this one. My first, uh, not proper boss, my first kind of influential boss was a super smart American from Wyoming, where she was from, with a master's and like one of the cleverest people I'd met. And she also then went into politics later and set up a school. She was one of those, you know, like a real activist. And her name was Devon. And the reason she was good was because she was tough on me and kind of, she asked me to do some price elasticity analysis when I was 25 and didn't even know what price elasticity analysis was, didn't know where to start and um, completely flummoxed me. And years later, when I was like, I came back from Mexico to be head of account management at Leo Burnett London, I was 30. She took me for lunch at the Ivy. I still remember this. And I said to her, you know, when you, you, you said that you got me to do that thing and I couldn't do it. I said, I, you you almost had me in tears. I just didn't know what to do. She burst into tears, this is like years later. She said, I had to Elliot, you didn't know what you didn't know. And you were so talented that you, but you weren't as talented as you thought you were. And I just wanted to show you, there was a whole world of stuff cause she'd done them and masters or something. And it was brilliant. So she was influential because I still remember that. Then the next one at the time was someone called Catherine Guthrie who ran the Procter & Gamble business and most of Lib in, in, in America, uh, internationally amazing woman. And not not for that reason, but because she was just so unbelievably down to earth and got it right. When we had a child, our first child, my eldest is now 17. She came round, came round to, you know, the house with a present, spent the afternoon with us. She was on a business trip, but that was the kind of human we were, we, she was. We went to Brazil once, we were doing some home visits and I got food poisoning and I was puking my guts out in the, in this place, in this small house it wasn't really a house like a house with no walls you know little thin walls and she was just adorable she goes you okay in there hey what's going on elia yeah i'm like yeah i'm alright, Catherine. i'm just dying um but but we traveled a lot together and and she's retired now and on my 50th sent a message but she was there was something really unaffected by her so you know there was no ego i guess and she was important arvind i mentioned my ceo in india um, sort of was one of those guys who had a mouse on his head he would used to flick around and he'd move to a different part brain the size of a planet and he'd gone to what was called the Indian Institute of Management of which there are a few, the IIMs there's one in Ahmedabad which is North India I think, I forget where it is actually and a few others, the creme de la creme it's like going to Yale and this guy taught me how to manage volume he said you're not going to be able to do it the way you've done it you know, I mentioned when you come into that space and you've suddenly got 50 people underneath you and you're a kid he taught me that and he still surprises me so that that was a boss there and then my current current boss is the chairman kevin gold very similar to arvin south african guy anti-apartheid guy was one of nelson mandela's team of lawyers where, back in the day incredibly he he you know you'd ask him about the ottoman empire he'd know he's but he doesn't i don't mean in any sort of cerebral he is cerebral but it's sort of a he's he's worldly he knows about politics, he knows about classical music, he'll tell you about what the real thing around COVID is, his wife's a radiologist, he's interested in everything in the world, and just seems to have read, he's just like a better version, always, everything, he's just better, and he's funny, and he's, un, you know, he never stops, his, we sit two feet from each other here here at Mishcon, I mean, and, and there are others as well, but those are the ones that, from a, from a boss point of view, immediately spring to mind, his openness, and his you know when you know someone so well, you know how they're reacting to the idea. So I know sometimes when his eyes go a bit gentler that he's like going, that's quite a good idea. He doesn't say it. He gives me two compliments a year if I'm lucky. But that's, <laughs> that, that's all right, though. I know, you know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. want it. I'd be, like a bit, I'd be a bit unnerved if he said you're great or something uh, more than twice a year or if twice a year. And then from a, from a, in a guest point of view, apart from tomorrow, obviously, uh, a guest point of view, there's a couple that stand out. One is Jimmy Mulville. And Jimmy Mulville is a um, comedian, producer, founder of Hattrick. Um,
0: oh, wow, okay.
2: And suffered that. from, uh, was an alcoholic, suffered from depression. Unbelievably honest with me, obviously with a microphone. And just, we had an incredible conversation where I went, my Lord, you know, we've all felt down. I haven't suffered from depression. Of course, I've, you know, had my moments of uh, uh, mental health issues, but not in, not, in a, not in a way where it stopped my world working. It might be an hour and I go, I just can't get out of bed. That's not the same as... You know, he couldn't function for months. You know, he so the story that re, I really resonated with me was the when you're in the thick of a depression and when it is there's a great book called Darkness Visible, and I forget who it's by, but it's a short book about depression, William Styron, I think. And you describe this black cloud on you, which is pushing, holding your body and your brain down. And he said, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and he'd go, Jimmy, open your eyes. Jimmy, Jimmy, open your eyes. It's really moving, actually, just to mm-hmm. recount... Get up. Jimmy, get out of the bed. Good. You're out of the bed. Go to the bathroom, Jimmy. Go to the bathroom. Jimmy, do your teeth. And he'd literally have to do this when he was in the depths of it. Open the curtain and all this stuff. And you go, I mean, I've got goosebumps saying it because he said it in, he was just telling me what his life was like for a while. And he'd thought about suicide and he'd gone to, you know, he, he, I remember he, we should listen back to the program actually, it's available on uh, catch up on uh, iTunes and <laughs> Spotify. But in there, he talked about contemplating suicide and he's Liverpudlian with this really strong work ethic. But when he described that and the debilitating effect of that, that really, I mean, even now, it's years ago, I don't remember what year, it was incredibly honest and incredibly mm-hmm. helpful for people that were listening going, geez, and Alistair Campbell, we heard coming into our Michigan Academy, not a dissimilar experience. You know, it's real, and you have to literally coach yourself for days and days on end, and then for months to rewire your neuro neural pathways and all that. Mm-hmm. So he was really influential um, in terms of a, a, a guest I met. So John Timpson, one of the family of Timpsons, fostered 36 children or something, or 39, I forget. I mean, incredible. Wow. Um, we talked about that, and his wife, who passed away relatively recently when I met her, it's just his sense of kindness, and that business employs X cons, ex, uh, convicts, they do some amazing things, so he was pretty extraordinary. Nicole Fahy, um who was actually not the founder of French Connection, I'm not a businesswoman, idiot. do not forget this, she was hysterical, <laughs> just such a fiery person, we've actually become friends since I interviewed her because she's just awesome, she's now, you know, she's a sculptress now, not a fashionista. Ali Parsa, who founded Babylon Health, who recently went public, he was, uh, I think, an, Ira- an Iraqi refugee, or an Iranian, one of the two, fled was in the back of vans and stuff, left, you know, it was from a middle-class family, but ended up doing a postgraduate, whatever, at the London Universities, unbelievably humble. And so there's things that stick with you. And then mm-hmm. I think Edwina Dunn, Edwina Dunn, who's um, set up the female lead, unbelievably talented without ever saying I'm talented. And you know, she laughed when, you know, in these big boardroom meetings with her husband, they set up Dun Humby, you know, behind the Tesco club card and all that. And they all the all the men would look at her husband as if he was the guy, and he'd look at them and go, no, no, my wife's answering this question. Yeah, right. Look over here. Hello, I'm over here. I'm a woman." Um, and she, but she says it's not. It wasn't an angry thing. It was just like, you know, Elliot. It was just the way it was. Mm. And it's like it was ridiculous. And they listened to me, and they kind of didn't know who I was. And I didn't care. They were such prats. Mm. So and you know, my my mum floated her business. My mum, my my dad worked for my mum, uh, actually in in their lives. So she was she's she's was the breadwinner for the last twenty years of. 20 years of my life and so it an incredibly important role model to me massive and my dad did too in a different way but my dad worked for my mum but that sense of being a woman in a man's world you know and, and 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 just saying it never got in the way because I didn't let it get in the way not because it didn't wasn't getting in the way but because they were just so for, forceful not in an alpha way just I'm on a mission we're doing our thing over here so yeah Lloyd Dorfman Sir Lloyd Dorfman um, was another one part of the National Theatre has been named after him Partly because he's just, a, he's incredibly successful. And a, and he's very, you know, if I was with him now, I am like, Lloyd, you're really scripted. But there's something, there's a humor yeah. behind the, this is, I've, I'm a six foot five guy. I'm worth a billion. And I'm saying it because it's not what, you know, it's not because he was this generous Sir John, Sir John Timpson, not this vulnerable Jimmy Mulville or this humble Edwina Dunn. He was something else, but you've got to respect that kind of person. he's He knows how to play the game. And I, I do respect them. And he was, you know, he had a, a glint in his eye. And after the recording, we had, we exchanged a few words because I knew when I'd asked him a question, he kind of fudged the answer. Then he said, you know, when you asked me that question, I was like, I knew what was coming, but we had a very honest conversation. So behind the, listen, I've got my game face on, there's a human, there's right. a genuine human there who gets the game he's playing. And often actually being a kid about things, the fun that we have, if we remember it is just a game mm. and you realize it's all just made up in your own head. Your business, my business—it's all just a construct, and of course, it's a bit more than that because there's food on the table. But if you just keep that perspective, you'll never get too mucked up about it. You'll never get too stressed. I say this is someone who gets stressed, but the minute you remember it is just a game, and I don't mean that in a in a in a bad. I don't mean that in a. It's not flippant. Just... No, no, it's just like just remember, it's just adults trying to make sense of stuff and put food on the table and go out with their friends and do nice things and give a tennis to charity. I mean, it's you know thinking about this you must we mustn't get stressed and some days when you're just not isn't that wonderful when Mm -hmm. you're just not feeling it you go why am I okay today (laughs) And I wish I knew the answer to that
1: what has really struck me during this conversation but also over the years that I've known you Elliot that it always sort of occurred to me that how did you manage to do both things you know if you're at Mishcom, but you're also you know the host of Jazz Shapers. You, you, and and it's not that you just did jazz, jazz Shapers. You were doing sort of DJing before. Part of me was going to ask you sort of, how do you do manage to do both, and can you? Is that sustainable? But I think during this conversation, I've realized that I don't think it would be possible for you not to do it because it's it's so ingrained in your personality. It's become your status. It's it's you. What what is that driver of why? <laughs> Why do no, you want? You're to
2: you're absolutely right. It isn't. It isn't like doing two things. And actually, there's a couple of other things I do, which is I'm involved in a startup, and mm-hmm. I'm involved in a charity. I mean, many people involved in a charity. I think. I think it's almost like there's compartments in my brain that all need to be activated, mm-hmm. and that actually, when all of them are activated, and I'm in one area, the impact on that area is better for it. So, when I'm at Michigan doing the day job, and it is the, the day job, with ninety percent of what you know I'm thinking about all the time probably 110 percent the day job is we're doing a presentation to people and it has to be right people will come and say does that sound right well I can I can tap into the way I think a program should be created mm. because I know how to do that when I'm in a program and I'm having a conversation with someone in the world of business which obviously I do a lot my business understanding enables me to unearth the truth about the human And the business, because I have an understanding of a balance sheet, I have an understanding of running a business, of setting up a business, of having HR issues, of having finance issues, all the stuff that we all go through, right? So I think the appreciation I have of being in all those different places is really important to me to be able to do the thing I do. And and there is no distinction, it all sort of melts into one. And that's what I meant about the strength and the weakness of being a jack-of-all-trades. I've always been the person that can be like, Elliot, in five minutes, I want you to stand up in front of a 1,000 people, and can you introduce all of us? I'm like, yeah, sure. I can do that, and I don't know why, but I can do it. And there are many things I cannot do. Uh, price elasticity, still weak, but um, I can get other people to do that now, so that's absolutely fine. I've got loads of data scientists here, tons of them. Data science is brilliant. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right. It is. It, it, it just makes but life's really short right mm. and it just makes it all i want to be alive i want every sinew of me to be engaged and it's it's brilliant and i uh, and that's that's the buzz it's a buzz so why it's a buzz i think i think i'm i'm addicted to the feeling of it feeling good but i've learned over the years that it's not about the super high good it's about the little well that was nice you know mm. agreeing which films we're going to show in a presentation actually that made me feel good that was a nice thing. Creating the film, writing the script, agreeing the media plan. There's, there's a deal to be done everywhere, if that makes sense. So I don't know. I, I think the why is that I keep getting, being fascinated by the people I meet and the, the possibilities, and I'm still um, – angry is the wrong word. I'm still frustrated by the inadequacies of where we're at and nervous – Now I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. That our, like, my children, our teenage children, are growing up in a world where there's an existential crisis called climate change. Mm. Well, our existential crisis was AIDS, and our existential crisis was, what was it actually? It was probably nuclear war. I was
1: going to say nuclear war. Yeah, it was nuclear war,
2: right? Mutually assured destruction. That's what it was. Like, my God, it's all going to happen. And now it's worse than that because it feels like this is a much bigger problem. But those are things that you need. You know, you need to unlock people's energy you need to unlock the problems but I also have massive empathy, sympathy and empathy for countries saying excuse me well you've gone and you've gone and destroyed the planet for 100 years getting ahead and now you're telling me I can't I mean I get why I can't but you're telling me I can't no you need to give there needs to be a quid, quid pro quo over here I'm not justifying the actions of India or China or Brazil or whatever it is but I am kind of going yeah, it's really easy for us sitting here in the UK to judge but I think the why tomorrow is the pain of trying to solve the problem mm-hmm. is horrible and yet exhilarating. So recently I've had to try and write some stuff around what Mishkondorea is trying to do at the moment in certain areas. And we've we've just done a, what's called a strategic combination with another law firm in Oxford and Cambridge. And bringing that merger together is part of what I'm doing. And they're great people, but it's still hard because we're now trying to bring two families together that don't know each other, mm-hmm. that kind of like each other because they've had a few dinners together and a lot of conversations, but now they've got to go, we're going to do some business together, right? That's quite hard. We've just opened an office in Hong Kong and we all get on, but it's like we're having to, but, but those are challenges which make me feel a bit puky. Okay, mm-hmm. like, how am I going to do it? You know, you feel like, I just don't know how to do it. And then you panic, then you go and sit with some people, then you go and write something, then you go and talk to them, and then you go through it. That whole process is just never-ending. You know the dice are always rolling, I suppose. And then one level, if you're not up for it, back to your Wendy, your point about the high achiever, you really just want to get off the merry-go-round. But on another day, when you're feeling up for it, everything is just as possible. That's all right.
1: Well, let's take a, a bit of the pressure off you and just move into our quick-fire round. Then yeah, so we have this is a time when it's a little bit more personal. Wendy, you can kick off. Sure thank
0: you We've got some really cheesy quick fire personal questions to ask you if you don't mind so I would love to know what's your idea of the perfect weekend and do you have any guilty pleasures that we ought to know about
2: the perfect weekend is probably going to be somewhere in Europe let's say it's either going to be Paris I was meant to be going to Lisbon in a couple of weeks I'm not but it could be Lisbon it could be and frankly anywhere any city in Europe where you get on a plane a couple of hours later you're in a completely different place you're with your other half that you love whoever that is and you you get the time on your own just to just be together and do nothing much in particular is have a wake up when you bloody want and I'll say <laughs> that um, you, you wake up when you want and you read the papers and you have a lazy lunch and you go for a walk and you mooch into a gallery and you might take in a something in the evening and you might go to bed early I mean nothing just company and streets you don't know and people that smile cheesy as hell but it's true that's my idea of a lovely weekend, uh, plus a long run if I'm allowed. There we go. <laughs> yeah. no, but I can I can do without the long run. I let the long run's another thing. Um, and then, what was your other one's guilty pleasure? Yeah, I don't find any of my pleasures guilty. Um, yeah, I'm just like I have loads of pleasures now. What's my what's a guilty pleasure? Cinnamon bun. Oh, nice. I like cinnamon buns, and and in fact, I'm um, Iris, who's my youngest. My I've got four kids, and Iris is eight. And on Sunday. Uh, that's just gone we went to get some presents for various people in the extended family just the two of us uh, various little crystals and things I mean literally like you know the worry the worry dolls and all these little things mm-hmm. we're just getting special things and then I, I took her to, to Gales for lunch and we ended up sharing a cinnamon bun and it was um, after the lunch of course not not before we had the savory stuff obviously <laughs> uh, and we had a brilliant time so yeah cinnamon bun
0: perfect I think Tamara's got a question about one of my not
1: guilty pleasures. <laughs> well, I was, yes, karaoke. Are you a solo karaoke singer? Are you a group singer or are you an avoider altogether?
2: I, I am a bit of an avoider, actually, if I'm honest with you. Although I think I've got an okay voice because I've, I've got a musical family and I love music. But generally, I, the, the weird thing is when you present for a, a job, and you're there in front of people, and you're interviewing someone, and you're not the centre of attention, which may sound a bit weird. When I'm not doing it as a thing, I actually get quite shy, uh, and so I'd rather watch. So even when like the parents at one of the schools do the karaoke, I'm like, "Come on, you've got loads of them. I'm like, "Nah, I'm an avoider. I like watching. I don't. I'm. I get nervous. Sounds okay. mental, but no.
1: Yeah. Oh, audience is very necessary. <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't want that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Last one is: Is there something? That you've always dreamed of doing that you haven't done yet i kind of quite don't know how you'd have the time but i (laughs) I want to know your answer
2: yeah there there is i've i'm i want to do two things at least that i haven't done um one involves going to new zealand Mm -hmm. and just hanging out for six months and walking around and getting to know the place i've always had a connection since i read the bone people by kerry holm which is a very good book when i was about 15 it felt quite a soulful place and my nickname in rugby was frano because I look like a rugby player called Frano Botica, I wish I played like him. So I think I have a weird connection with the Maoris and thing. just in my head. I mean mm. nothing, uh, anything more than that. So one is that, and the other one is to do a road trip across America, to get in a car and just go for a year and stop at completely random places. Those, and actually, the, there was a third one. Years ago, I wanted to go and do a, uh, um, go across Russia and Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Sort of travel, isn't it? Go across Russia and Mongolia, finding different sorts of music and recording it, and making a program about it. In fact, when I was going to become a BBC, I was I I was interviewing to become a BBC World Service producer when I while I was looking at advertising, and I think I did a program about the rise of fascism in the youth in Spain. One idea. And then the other one was this notion of doing a music, different tribes, different music, which I think Andy, what's this chops has done since people have done this, you know, but you literally just go, I'm going to record it. We're going to talk about it. What's the ontology of all this? Where's it all come from? And you go right across and you, and you get to know a country and you get to know the music and all that. That would be amazing. Mongolia, I think. Yeah. So all travel things.
0: Yeah. And people things.
2: And people things. Yeah. And uh, one last thing to books. So mm. there is a time and I love reading when I'm just going to stop work completely and just back to back. Like I've got 25 books I want to read, 10 are next to bed. I I read through whatever, a couple of, couple of one on the weekend. I just want to t- have the space to actually do that a lot more because there's just so many incredible books. Now I'm, now I'm being so cheesy. I'm answering your questions in a cheesy way.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's been such a pleasure to, to interview you and to also be on the other side because you did interview me all those years ago, which I, I loved the interview that I had with you, the Jazz Shapers. Because you were I, great.
2: And if you listen back, you probably said a hell of a lot, which I hope was was good for people to hear because sometimes what I find is people don't get the chance to say this is what it's all about. And I think, I hope you did, about you as a person as much as your own business.
1: Definitely. I think it was it was just the fact that you kind of made me feel, I can't speak about your other guests, but you made me feel incredibly um, comfortable and just, you know, it went off in different directions and, and that's the wonderful thing. And I think Wendy and I are trying to learn as we go through this process, but it's been such a, a joy to interview you. I'm going to give you the last words though to, to wrap up. If there's anything that we didn't ask you, or just any final thoughts over to you, Elliot.
2: Now I'm going to have to do like your outro. So we'll do this properly. You've been listening to Wendy and Tamara. They've been <laughs> interviewing Elliot Moss here on this very special edition of Genuine Humans. We hope you had a good time. Listen out for the next podcast. It's going to be available very soon to download and it's going to be an interview with, we don't know who yet. They're the smiley faces, they go, we don't know who. But anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure for me. Have a very lovely day.
0: You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.